So we have been in a series on Habakkuk called, Why Does God Seem Unfair? Obviously, the host moment was a little more fun. I am transitioning now into some of, some of the heaviness of grief, which we've been wanting to create some space for in this series. Uh, Habakkuk or Habakkuk, you're allowed to correct me still. I mentioned that last week. Uh, you can call it whatever you want is sort of an unknown book. It's something that you probably haven't had a lot of time to explore or to ponder. It was written a long time ago, so some of it is sort of strange if you're just reading through it. It's hard to understand. So I'm really excited. Last week we looked at Habakkuk 1. This week we're diving into Habakkuk 2, and we're wrestling with this question, why does God seem unfair? So the struggle for all of us is that at some point when suffering intrudes, this could be suffering that happens in your life, could be suffering that happens to someone around you. This could just be a generalized sense of suffering, like injustice that's taking place all over the world. As it happens, inevitably at some point, you have to look up as Habakkuk did in chapter one and ask, why God are you allowing this, right? Like, why is this happening? How could this be? If you love me, God, how could you let me suffer the way that I did? If you love my family member, my friend, my roommate, God, how could you allow them to suffer? If you love this world, God, how could you allow it to get torn apart so easily? And to this question, um, we saw in chapter one, Habakkuk offer forth a lament. Uh, this was a beautiful invitation from the scriptures that instead of sitting silently in this question, instead of sitting silently in your doubts, you're invited to speak, to offer forth the questions you have to God in the hope that God is going to encounter you in them, that somehow, some way, God is going to enter in with you to these very questions. So this week, in week two, I'm very excited to continue this story with you. In just a moment, we're going to look at Habakkuk 2.1. Uh, but before we do, I want to ask you to remember in your mind, the first time you came to Chicago and you went to the top of either the Willis Tower or the Hancock, right? E either one of those have observation towers. Uh, I'm gonna throw a photo up here to remind you, just in case you forgot what you did. Uh, this is a photo of the Willis Tower, obviously, their glass observation decks. What I love about this experience, I think I was 18 years old the first time I went up there. Up to this point, I had been in the city, right? And as you're in the city of Chicago, city of Chicago, when you're on the ground, especially over in the loop, it's congested. It feels kind of claustrophobic, right? You're like sort of surrounded all the time by these immense buildings. There's lots of people flowing. There's traffic. But there's also something sort of awe-inspiring, like you're constantly looking up. 
You're sort of struggling to gauge where you are. Do you remember those first early months when you were lost all the time, like just confused what street you were walking down? You didn't recognize any of the buildings. But when you go to the top of the tower, in this case, the Willis Tower, it gives you a shift in perspective. If you remember going up there for the first time, I just love the the sort of wonder to be able to see the immensity, not just of downtown Chicago, but all of Chicago land that kind of spreads out beneath you. When you get up that high to the Willis Tower and you're above everything else, there's this overwhelming sense that just everything feels smaller, right? Everything feels more rightly in order. The traffic seems less stressful and overwhelming. You can even see glimpses of parks and roads where someone very clearly and intentionally had been creating order where otherwise there might not have been. This is the gift of perspective, right? Of course. And there's something very beautiful about being able to get perspective, to get up high and to be able to see differently than you had before. So this morning, as we continue in this journey with Habakkuk and God, after Habakkuk's lament, I'm going to take you to Habakkuk 2.1. You're going to see this brilliantly insightful decision that Habakkuk makes. Uh, This is what Habakkuk 2.1 says. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. I'll stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. Um, This is kind of fun that if you're sitting in the world of Habakkuk, right? This is early 600s BC. Uh, This is a very ancient world, very different to our own. Um, In fact, I grabbed a photo of a tower-ish. This isn't the tower uh, per se, but a tower that would have been common in Habakkuk's world. And the image is that Habakkuk, after blasting this lament out to God, says, I'm going to post myself up there. and I'm going to wait and watch and see what God does. There's some very practical reasons why Habakkuk's maybe doing this. It's possible that he's looking out because we've heard the Babylonians are coming to invade. If you remember from last week, the Babylonians are coming. So maybe he's watching to see, like, are they actually going to come? Maybe from the tower, he's looking back at his own people of Israel, watching to see if they're going to change. Is there going to be any movement, any repentance, any mustering of an army to defend themselves? Um, But I think mostly the reason why Habakkuk heads up to the watchtower is that Habakkuk wants to meet God, right? This is what Habakkuk says. I will go up there to wait till God answers me. Uh, I think it's interesting, the the word answer. If we could go back to Habakkuk uh, verse 1 really quick. The word, and what answer um, I am to give to this complaint. Essentially, what answer is coming to me. This word in Hebrew is quite literally the word for word, uh, dabar. This is... Uh, just a common word. It's kind of expecting that a word is going to come. Some word will come to Habakkuk that is going to be able to comfort him. Obviously, this could be an answer, but I think it's helpful to just sort of see Habakkuk almost holds out his hands and says, I'm waiting on a word. I'm waiting on the word to come to me. Okay, now we head to verse two. And beautifully, almost immediately, the Lord is going to reply. This is what the Lord says. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. 
Okay, this is probably one of those moments where if you're reading the Bible on your own, you're like, I am already lost, right? Like, what is happening? This is moving fast. Does this help Habakkuk? You know, like, is this what you were looking for? Um, I think it does. And the reason for it is this. God says to Habakkuk, a revelation is coming to you. Get ready to write down a revelation. In fact, the word here yet again is word. Get ready to write down a word that is coming. Make it plain on tablets, so don't hide it. Don't obscure it. This isn't meant to be a hidden word. And in fact, this word is one that uh, the Hebrew is a little jumbled here. Either a herald may run with, right? Somebody can go take this word and they can share it all across the land to all who are hurting, all who are questioning, all who are afraid. Or uh, there's another Hebrew translation here where it could say something like, so that the one who has it may run because of it, right? The sense that like this word is going to allow you to run, to live, to be able to to continue. You're not going to be stuck at the watchtower anymore because you get this word. Now you're going to be able to run free. Now, as we think about what this revelation could be, here's the interesting question. What revelation does Habakkuk get? The Lord says, Habakkuk, a revelation is coming. And then we're sort of left lingering throughout this chapter wondering, which word is the revelation? Now, I have a few theories, and next week we're going to sit in chapter 3 where I would suggest that the full revelation comes, okay? So I'm just wooing you back one more time. Come on next week. Don't let Habakkuk scare you. We're going to get to the end of the series and want to invite you to journey with me. Um, but here's just for a moment, if I were to step back from Habakkuk, what many scholars note about this is that God often responds to our overwhelm, God often responds to our suffering by pointing us to a needed revelation, by pointing us to something that needs to change, something that needs to open up. We need to be able to see something that we couldn't see before. Um, Sometimes, I think, as we are going to glance ahead at chapter 3, the revelation that comes is an encounter with God himself, an encounter with God himself. Now, I know if you're reading the Bible A lot of these encounters can seem big and fantastic, you know, like a burning bush or an angel or or someone else shows up miraculously, and that doesn't seem very likely to happen to you today. You're like, I need a revelation now, God. But I will say, just anecdotally, as I was pondering this passage, thinking about this revelation that God says is coming to Habakkuk, um, I had an interesting experience this last fall that... Uh, This last fall was hard, bumpy for many reasons. I kind of gestured towards it. I was talking about it a little bit last week. Um, And yet a turning point for me this last fall came around late October, early November. And like, just take this for what it's worth. Um, This doesn't happen all the time or even probably that regularly. But I, I was just sort of struggling, not even knowing I was struggling. You've ever had those moments where you're like just kind of moving through the week and you're lower than you realize and yet you don't really know what to do to address it. And I was feeling just off kilter, like I wasn't, my prayer life wasn't great. I just felt sort of low-grade angry sometimes and felt confused and disoriented. And as all this was happening, one night in the middle of the night, with no reason that I can tell you, middle of the night, I have one of these experiences, I've, I've heard from many of you, you have these too, where I wake up at two or three in the morning, this occasionally happens, doesn't happen often to me, and as I woke up at two in the morning, I like felt God's presence. And it wasn't anything, you know, I'm just really trying to tone this down a little bit. It wasn't like an image or an angel. There was nothing, you know, lights were not opening up in the ceiling. There was nothing like, there was no hallucinogen. There was no drug I was on. Um, I just woke up in the middle of the night and I felt God's presence and I felt God like 
press on to me, like press down onto my soul and just be like, I am here and I need you to, to re-engage me. You know, just this sense of like, come back to me. And I, I just immediately, you know, like sort of start pouring forth these prayers that felt like they'd been bottled up for probably five or six weeks. Words were coming out. My laments were pouring forth. It lingers all of 20, 30 minutes. And I wake up the next day and it's one of those things, again, if you've had any experience like this, where the next day I was just hungry for God again. It was like this spiritual hunger had returned to me and I just found myself leaning in, like in pursuing God in a new way. Now, I know as I say that some of you probably, and you'll probably come up and talk to me afterwards, some of you have had these experiences. Maybe this has happened this last year. Maybe it happened at some point in your life. Maybe it was early on when you were first becoming a Christian. Um, I think a lot of us do have some sense of God's presence at some times. This isn't always, this isn't regularly, and I'm hesitant to share this because the danger is when we're hurting and suffering and full of doubt, it can feel risky to kind of open yourself up and say, God, like, are you going to reveal yourself to me? Are you going to give me a word? But I wanted to share that this morning because I do believe that God does this regularly, that God does reveal himself to us. A revelation can come to us. Now, if that's an encounter with God revelation, I want to point out two other sort of layers to this revelation that I find fascinating because uh, I get into this stuff and get really excited and worked up about it. Um, one layer to this revelation is that whenever you hear about revelations in the Old Testament, there's this growing anticipation that God needs to come. Like, this can't just be a nice middle-of-the-night spiritual encounter. It's nice that God can speak. It's nice that God can whisper. But, like, we need God to come to reveal himself to us. Israel gets their story so twisted. We get our story so twisted. We need a clearer picture than just the hints and guesses that middle-of-the-night revelations can be. And so, wonderfully, you heard about it in the worship this morning. Uh, you've... you've heard about it before, uh, and it's coming as we move towards the season of Easter that's right around the corner for us. God himself does come. So some scholars point out the revelation Habakkuk is ultimately waiting for is when Jesus Christ will come in the flesh and say, I and the Father am one. I am God. When you want to know God, look to me. Uh, John beautifully one of my favorite verses in the Bible says, we have seen his glory, the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth. Like if you are looking for God, and I do believe this for people who are suffering, I've seen this pastorally over and over again. Sometimes it can be hard to find God or maybe even faith or spirituality. But if you look to Jesus, it can clarify things. If you look to Jesus, the revelation gets clearer. So some of the encouragement this morning, if one is to wait for an encounter with God, another is to say, hey, if you're stuck, if you're kind of like, hey, those middle of the night urges aren't coming to me, look to Jesus. Just like stay with Jesus. Linger with Jesus. Spend some time in the Gospels. Ponder Easter as it comes up. Like really sit with it and keep asking this question. What does Jesus know about suffering that reveals God's heart for my suffering? Like, what does Jesus know about his suffering that reveals God's heart for my suffering? Yeah, there's one final layer. I mentioned there were two. If an encounter with God could be this revelation, if Jesus himself is ultimately what Habakkuk's waiting on, there is a final revelation that kind of bubbles up throughout the Bible. Sometimes when you see this word, wait for the revelation, wait to write it down, your, your mind might even have gone 
to the book of Revelation in the New Testament, where the ultimate picture of where all of history is heading goes. Now, I was just talking before the service. One of our small groups on Thursday night just happens to be studying Revelation. And I said, wow, that's ambitious. Uh, Glad to know that you're studying Revelation. Uh, that sounds fun, but maybe hard to recruit new members to your group. You know, that's, that's a tricky call. Um, but here's, here's why Revelation matters and even why I need to eat my own words. Um, some of what Revelation gives us, this picture of the end, is a picture of hope for our suffering. Because what happens in Revelation is that there's a lot of confusing images. There's a lot of swirling political context. I realize Revelation is a tricky book to work through, and I realize it gets used in all sorts of wonky ways. But if you stick with Revelation, it takes you all the way to this garden city at the very end where the river of life is throwing through this garden city. God is on the throne and is fully revealed. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is obscured. We are freed and removed from all of our own bondage, all of our own sin, all of the, our own brokenness. And in this climactic moment, we're told from Jesus himself that he says, I will wipe away every tear. And then there's this even more beautiful line where it says, and these trees which are lining this river, the leaves of these trees are for the healing of the nations. What Jesus says in this picture, and I just pause to imagine it for one moment with you, is that every tear is going to be wiped away. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the billions and billions of souls who have shed tears across their entire lives? Those who, like us, maybe have real suffering, real knee, I mean, like scraped knees, broken relationships, family hurt, um, all kinds of real suffering that does take place in our lives. But then even those broader reaches of suffering, I mean, the, the pockets and corners of human history where the suffering has been so intense, you almost can't see God in it. Jesus is going to wipe away every tear. And so in this revelation, the reason why I bring it up is I don't know that we as Christians hold on to that hope enough. Do you feel that? Like I, Paul, the apostle Paul is going to have this moment. I, I think he was struggling with it in his church just as much as we struggle with it in our present day and context. He's like, you guys are so distracted by all of life that's happening around you. And I get it. Like we've got jobs, we've got relationships, we've got work, we've got stress, we've got anxiety, we've got vacations, we've got like all kinds of stuff just keeps coming at us. And Paul is like, do you know that because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, we do not live a life of suffering where we hope in vain, but actually all of us are going to enter into this final picture where with resurrected bodies, Jesus will wipe away our tears and we will enter into eternal life in the kingdom of God together. This picture does, it feels so far away. It feels so hard to hold on to in the middle of our suffering, but Paul's like, don't live life without this hope. Don't live life without this revelation of what's coming. Like God is going to restore all things. Surely, surely that changes your suffering just a little bit. Surely that helps you as you're standing at the top of the watchtower and you're looking out at life underneath you. You see there at the very end, though it might be far off, though it might be hard to glimpse, though it might at times not even feel real enough to you, you can see this picture of when Jesus is going to restore and redeem all things. Here's what verse 3 says, and I find it to be an incredible pastoral verse, like just a comforting 
tender verse from God. This is what God says to Habakkuk. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. I think we need this word from God today. You need this word from God. And I know we've only gotten to verse three here. The word from God is this. A revelation is coming for you. I don't know what revelation it is this morning. It might be this, this gentle presence of God in the night. It might be Jesus himself that you're just going to need to see afresh over these coming months. It might be the picture of the end where God is going to restore all things. I love what God offers us. He says the revelation is coming. It has an appointed time. I know your life. I know your needs. I know your days. It's not going to prove false. It will not lie. Uh, it will come. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Now, as you sit with this assurance from God, um, we probably could stop right here. Uh, but I want to take you to one last verse that gives some direction, because I think the question is, if you're sort of holding this tension, you're waiting on this revelation, we are a bit of, at a bit of a standstill in that there's a revelation that's coming for Habakkuk, will come. We're going to talk even a little more about it next week. But what do we do? Like, how do we live now? What's the goal? What's the vision? What's the direction for us? So uh, somehow in the midst of all that's already been going on, Habakkuk is going to drop a verse in verse four, and you'll see it in just a second. A verse that I'm going to make the case changes the trajectory of human history. Okay, this one verse, I'm not overstating. Here it is. This is verse four to five, and I'll break it down so we can understand it together. Here's what it says. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Okay, let me explain what's going on before I zero in on this all-important verse. Um, what's happening is that there is a contrast here in the Hebrew between two types of people. And I think this is easy to lose, but it's helpful to kind of track the flow of where God is taking Habakkuk. I think Habakkuk's struggle in his suffering is not necessarily that his suffering cannot be endured himself. Like most suffering can be handled. But normally the problem in suffering is when you start focusing on that other person who's not suffering, <laughs> right? You know who that person is. Uh, that coworker who seems to be doing so much better than you, even though they're terrible at their job. Uh, that family member who is making more money than you and it drives you crazy because you were better in school than they were. Uh, it could be that friend that even though you love this friend, you can't help but feel like everything comes easily to them, right? This is that person. And for Habakkuk, that person is the Babylonians. And so he's just thinking like, God, how? How could you let them come in? How could you let them invade us? How could you let them take everything. And this is what God says. The enemy, the one who is against me, is puffed up. Um, it's quite literally the Hebrew word swollen there. Their soul is swollen. Uh, his desires are not upright. The, the things that this person wants and longs for are crooked. They're moving in the wrong directions. Uh, jump down to verse five here, because this is where that description continues. Wine betrays him, right? This indulgence, this sense of like, numbing themselves out to the world. Um, this person is arrogant and never at rest because they are as greedy as the grave. And like death is never satisfied. Man, 
that is, that is a line right there. Like death is never satisfied. If you want some good poetry, uh, just sit with that one, that picture for a moment. What's going on with this description is that God is describing uh, quite literally a soul, a person who has become so inwardly bent and turned in on themselves that this description says, you know, there's, there's pride and arrogance. They're self-centered. They're thinking of themselves. There's this consuming, this constant consuming, like they want more and more and more. Uh, there's this sense that anything they consume is never enough for them. They're just looking to take more and more and more. And yet, as this soul is kind of moving through all these things, it's almost like a stomach that's never satisfied. That's sort of the picture of these desires and the swollen soul. It's like a person who's eaten too much over and over and over again to the point that they're disconnected from their body, they're disconnected from their needs, they're just consuming endlessly in the world. And it's kind of interesting that God describes the Babylonians this way, but I think it's intentional that, that God in this verse, isn't only saying the Babylonians. Instead, God is actually making this bigger case, contrasting two types of responses to the world, really, and to God's relationship to the world and to suffering itself. On the one hand, there is a person who can only see their own needs and desires. You feel that at all? Like, I, I know some people who have suffered immensely, and yet the suffering at some point turns in them where you're sitting with them and you're like, I'm not sure, like, I, I feel sad for you, but I'm not sure you're healthy in what you're looking for. Like, your anger seems pretty toxic even, you know? Like, this is just sort of concerning. Um, I recently went back and forth on whether or not to bring this up. Saw the movie uh, Saltburn. Has anyone seen this movie? Um, I'm glad none of you raised your hands because I should not confess to have seen this movie. Um, for any who heard about it, it's a very sort of graphic and vivid depiction on Amazon um, of sort of class and tension and there's sexuality and all kinds of stuff swirling. The reason I ended up watching it and the reason why I bring it up is that I think our, our culture is struggling right now to figure out what to do with our suffering. And the tension is that if our suffering turns towards this inward consumption, right? If our suffering ends up becoming this sort of swollen heart that just becomes about consuming your own needs, one of the most interesting things about Saltburn is it shows this very wealthy family and this, the movie's a critique of this wealth over in England. It's like old money. It's a big estate. They have servants. And it's all this sort of very contemporary critique of how the wealthy continue to live this indulgent, extravagant life. But what's interesting is that into the scene comes a man who is not from wealth. Uh, he's from a poorer background. He's worked hard. He's gotten into Oxford. He's trying to make it in this family. And instead of him being the sort of righteous corrective to this wealth, he gets sucked into it, right? Like the wealth kind of starts consuming him. He gets so focused on him now not having access to the privileges that they have, that it becomes this sort of terrible, violent clash of wealth and non-wealth, of classes against each other. And I, the reason I bring this up, I think there is a real danger in our culture that we, if we do not return to God in our suffering, we will only have our own desires left. And as much as we want to hold on to justice, as much as we want to fight for certain causes again and again and again, I've seen suffering twist the soul 
till it's just kind of consuming for the sake of consuming. I think that's what is going on here in these two verses. But there is a contrasting picture. And this is the invitation God has to Habakkuk. This is the invitation God has to us. And this is why I say this verse changed human history. In the simplicity of one sentence, God is going to say, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. And as you dwell on this for just a second, here's the directive for us. When it comes to how we respond to the overwhelm of our suffering, when it comes to how we even move forward from this watchtower where we're standing and waiting, I think all of us long to be righteous. All of us want to be a good person to some degree, right? Like we want to be righteous. Uh, And even though we might not know what that means, like what is righteous? Does it mean like you give money away? Does it mean you're super kind all the time? Does it mean that you like are successful? What what is a righteous person? Does it mean you go to church? Does it mean you, you attend a small group? Like what is righteous? God is going to give us one characteristic that determines righteousness, and it is faith. It is as simple as faith. Now notice with me that that faith is connected to the revelation. So the faith is connected to the vision that we're waiting on. Ultimately, where this is going to go in the Bible is that that faith is going to be connected to Jesus Christ himself. What Jesus does for us, who Jesus is, who Jesus teaches for us to be, who Jesus uh, models, demonstrates through love on the cross. It's the death Jesus is going to offer for us. It's the blood that Jesus is going to say is there to cleanse our sins. And then ultimately it's the resurrection. It's an invitation into new life to be born again. All of this is facilitated not through good deeds, not through reordering one's life to look really good uh, by certain standards, but instead simply through faith. Faith in God is the only merit one has to access righteousness. Now, if you linger with me for a second, maybe you can start to see it. This thought is going to blow the Apostle Paul's mind. (laughs) The Apostle Paul is actually going to reference this verse in Habakkuk more than any other verse in the Old Testament. Isn't that fascinating? Paul, Paul cannot get past this summary description. And there's other, there's other like gestures towards this across the Old Testament. It's a pretty consistent picture that this is what God is saying. But this verse is so clear. If you want to be righteous, it's not good works. It's not good deeds. It's not circumcision. It's not going to church. It's not being a good person. It's not giving money away. It's not changing the world or enacting some sort of global peace. Instead, the only thing you can do to access righteousness is to have faith. Faith is the only gift that transitions you into the righteousness that God offers. Now, as I say that, I, I don't know about you, this, this can be a challenge in Christianity that you're like, oh, faith, okay, faith. Do I have faith? How do I get faith? Like, can I, am I reaching for it? Am I, do I still have it? Like, am I living in it? Do, did I move away from it at some point? But here's why this verse matters. God says, if, if you're confused, if you're not sure where your landing page is, if you're not sure what should anchor you as you walk through suffering, God says, just, just keep returning to faith. Like just keep, as you're, as you're maybe moving over here, as you're holding a few doubts, just, just find yourself back in faith. Like as, as life seems harder, as maybe some tragedy sets in that you weren't expecting, 
We turn right here to faith. And faith as a posture, it really doesn't bring anything with it, right? There's nothing you can sort of offer to the table. Faith is instead this like clinging to, this holding on to. Faith is kind of like when you're in the water, you have a life raft or something's there that floats and you just have to hold on to it. Like that's, that's all faith really is. This is such a profound idea that as you track religions across human history, as you, as you track the history of ideas, no idea has captivated more people than the Christian idea that all God is looking for in righteousness is faith. Like this, this just doesn't make sense anywhere else in life. I invite you to go out to the city and to look for it. Search, if you will, high and low. Uh, try to find in status or success. Try to find with money or retirement, with relationships and friendships. Like everywhere else, there's at least always some sort of give and take. But here, in the transaction of grace, it's righteousness that's offered because of faith. Here's my prayer for you this morning. I hope that in light of this picture from Habakkuk, you can hear that if you are suffering, there is nowhere else you need to, to go than to simply return to faith. And I even further want to offer to you that that faith does not need to be rushed, does not need to be forced. God is not looking to trap you in faith. Instead, as you look for these pictures, these revelations, Begin, begin to see the God that is, is trying to woo you back to faith. The God that wants to free you from having a soul that is so distracted, so inwardly bent, that all you can do is consume. Come back and live right here in faith. Allow me to pray for us as we turn now to the table where we get to display this faith to each other. God, we hold this word from you in Habakkuk. We hold all of its immensity, all of its gift. And instead of being a God who wants something from us, you are a God who simply invites us into the mystery, the journey of faith. I pray, Lord, especially for those this morning who are searching for faith, who are looking for it, that even this morning you would come close to them and you would assure them all they need to do is just hold on to you. Hold on to whatever picture you have to give them. Hold on to Jesus come now to hold on to his body and blood. We pray all this in Jesus' name.